of our circumstances. And due to your sovereignty, you have deemed it fit, Lord, for even for us as your children to experience loss uh, of those who are near to us. So at this particular time, I'd like to pray for my brother uh, Kim and, and Karen. Um, and I pray for them now as they are about to head back home. And, and Father, to be a light that shines in darkness, to be one who experiences the true life that is found in your son, Jesus Christ, that you will give them strength and wisdom to say the right things that need to be said, to be able to bring comfort because they too have experienced comfort in your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, that you might be able to use them to be beacons of light and hope, um, especially for those who are not feeling hope, uh, who are actually feeling hopeless at this moment. So we pray for them now that you will minister to their spirits so that they in turn can minister to the spirits of others who may not know or experience the true love and joy and fulfillment and purpose that is experienced in their relationship with you. Um, so please use them to be a great testimony and a trophy of your grace in the lives of their family back home. And Father, I bring before you my brother Mark with the internal bleeding that seems to be going on now, Lord, and it does not seem to be subsiding. You are the great physician. You are the man who can, you are the God who can touch a man and heal them completely. So we ask for such healing to take place within Mark's body even now. Um, in this uncertain time, we know that all things work together for good to those that love you. And so we ask, Lord, that at this time you will show the good that you are working within Mark's life even now and for his wife Cecilia also. So, Father, we ask that you'll give the doctors wisdom to be able to identify what's going on and to prescribe the appropriate medications that may help. Um, but more importantly, Lord, we know that it's through uplifting to you, our God, our brother. We lift him to you now that you will bring about completeness and wholeness within his body so that he can continue to be a testament and, once again, a trophy of your grace to the lives of all he encounters. Also, pray for Bob, the guy he shared with in the hospital. I pray you'll be able to impact his heart as well through Mark's testimony and just to know that we're praying for this guy who, who doesn't even know who you are. And with that, I just pray for other people within this congregation who are feeling sick, who have experienced things, who are going through physical ailments now. Father, reveal yourself to them, comfort them, strengthen them, heal them. Father, we bring them before you now knowing that you are working about your purposes in each of their lives. And while we may not see, we know, Lord, you are in complete control. So, Father, we uplift all our brothers and sisters before you now who are going through physical ailments, who are going through grief, who are going through depression, who are going through various illnesses, both physical and spiritual and emotional. Father, we ask that you will touch and breathe upon each person here. The way you breathe life into Adam and Eve and made them a living soul, the way you breathe life into the, the, the dry bones and gave them life, Father, you might breathe life into every person that's feeling ailments now so that they might experience the fullness and the abundance that can only be found in you. So, Father, we commit all these people into your hands. And even with that, Lord, just Casey and Brianna, we commit them into your hands now that you will continue to bring about your purposes for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for that. Man, life, life is full on. Life is hard. Life, <laughs> I find interesting, life is about being experienced. But the fullness of such life is always lacking 
if we, as the people of God, choose to live life our way. You see, last week, we're just doing a series on the Christmas story. And last week, we started looking at various aspects of it. One aspect of the Christmas story last week was what? What was the aspect of the Christmas story that we looked at last week? Repairing. Oh, sorry, I liked that. Oh, I think that's the old... Yeah, that's, that's the old... Uh, there's one that's called Reconcile there, sister, that I put on the desktop. That's the one that we need for this one around. My apologies. I should have told you. I apologize for that. But at high school, and you may have experienced this in your own life, and I find this fascinating in high school, how there are dramas that go on at high school. You may have been a part of those dramas in your time at high school. Um, as an adult and as a teacher working at a high school... I find that the dramas don't seem to minimise as adults. If anything, the dramas are just as bad. I remember, I remember this quite distinctly as a high school student walking back from PE and I had a girl named Sarah Lister on one side. They weren't all my girlfriends, they were just girls that I knew. Uh, one girl named Sarah Lister on one side, a girl named Tracy White on one side and we're talking and they started talking about a guy, a mutual friend of all three of us and Tracy said that she liked him and Sarah said, but he's going out with me and they started bickering and then, then Sarah, just a massive left hook, just straight across, just punched Tracy right in the face and I'm just like, and then Tracy retaliated, she threw a punch, and then you just got these two girls going at it. And it wasn't like girly punches. You know, no offense, I'm not being sexist or nothing. These guys were like holding hair and pow, pow. It was, it was really quite disturbing, and I was, I was watching. Okay, so, but those are the dramas that take place. And now, even at high school, I see such dramas happen all the time. I see those sorts of dramas, not punch-ups, but I see so much politics going on at high school amongst teachers, and I don't know why. I look and I, I talk with one faculty, and I hear someone complain about someone else. I talk with another faculty. I hear about someone complain about someone else, and you have these dramas go on continually. Then you have dramas with parents and teachers, or parents and students, and students and teachers, and students and parents, and it just goes, and it's like every combination of dramas that are going on, and, and, and I praise God that in some instances there has been peace brought about, solutions found, and problems resolved within each of those specific things. And in other words, there is what, what's called a, a reconciling, a reconciling of, of the relationships that have been broken. Now, last week we looked at the Christmas story and that the Christmas story is about repair. The Christmas story is about repairing that which we as the people of God's creation have broken that it's on us, that we have caused this gap between a holy, righteous, pure God and us. And that that sin separates us from that relationship God had originally intended for us. He, he in His goodness, He in His love, He in His mercy took the first step, which is what the Christmas story is about, the initial step to repair, to repair that specific break that we have caused, or, as the word says there, to reconcile a relationship that has been lost. 
See, that word reconcile means to, and I have shared this in numerous times over the past, but I want to reiterate it to you again. The word reconcile is to re-establish friendly relations. It means to, in the dictionary definition, to do good again. And in both those definitions, the idea is something has been lost and then re-established or rebuilt once more. It is set in place again. So you had something that is now gone, and then it is re-established. And I want to make it clear here that re-establishment is not done by us. That re-establishment is actually the last thing from our minds. But God, in his goodness, sent Jesus Christ to be born of a virgin in order to reestablish that relationship that we didn't want anything to do with. I want to just reiterate that. So I'm going to open a word of prayer, and we're going to look at this next, next aspect of the Christmas story, that it's not only about repair, but it's also about reconciliation, about the reestablishing of a friendship. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And I pray you might reveal yourself to us and refresh our view, refresh our vision of who you are and what the Christmas story really represents. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we view life through various lenses. We view life on how successful our life is depending upon what way or what way we choose to look at it. For example, some people view life and the success of life through the lens of money earned. Uh, We can view life through the lens of the position or the social status that we hold We can view life through the popularity or the recognition that we have from others. We can can interpret life or view life through the lens of the attitudes given or even of people's perceptions of us. The important lens from which we are supposed to view life is through the lens of God's Word. To view life through the lens of God's Word, to view life through the heart God has. To view life through the lens of God's biblical truth and God's perspective on us because the biblical truth speaks to facts we don't like. As I shared last last week, we are the ones that cause the trouble and we are revealed in God's Word, which is like a mirror as to what we really like. I think I've shared this story with you before. It just just popped into me again when I was um, thinking about it. God's word is brutally honest when I remember, if, if the God's word's like a mirror, I took Emily to the hospital, I had to go, she had to go get a, an MRI done and, and some stuff done, so I went back to the, the, um, the place I was staying at the time across the road and I quickly shaved my head because, well yeah, obvious reasons, so I quickly shaved my head because I had this nice thin fluff of hair that it was, it had been growing. Then the phone rang and the doctor said, oh we're all finished, I'm like, oh, so I had to quickly, quickly finish and I'm walking down, and people are staring at me. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I can understand. I can understand why you'd be staring at me. Then, and most guys do this, they look at their reflection in a mirror or in a window. I do it, and I reckon 95% of 
guys here do it as well. Perhaps Jimmy won't because he's just so good looking. But I look, I look from a distance and I think something's not looking right. I go closer and what I had done is left one line of hair <laughs> on my head. I had a reverse part <laughs> where everything else was shaved. So there's one long thing. That's why people were staring at me. And I couldn't go back. I had to go get my daughter. So I'm walking through. Now I know why people are looking because I have this one, maybe I was starting to trend. But see, the brutality of what a mirror does, it reveals the truth. That's what God's word does. It reveals your reverse part. It reveals what you are really like. And it reveals the relationship that we have with God outside of Christ, which is literally non-existent. And you look at this within the scriptures. Psalm 14, 1 to 3 says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is a brutal, accurate picture of what you and I are really like as people. This is what we are really like. This is, where, this is what the natural man desires, to have nothing to do with God. It's actually reiterated by Paul in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who sees God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Isaiah 53 verse 6, we read this. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us, of us all. In each of these instances, the initiator of the breakup is us. The initiator, in Psalm 14, the emphasis is on our foolishness and proclaiming there is no God. In the corresponding passage in Romans, the emphasis focuses on the fact that we don't seek after God. And in Isaiah 53, the text centers on the fact that we have turned to our own way. Now, I know that I'm preaching to the choir here. I know most, if not all of you, have come to believe and accept these biblical Christian truths. Thus, the necessity for you and I to remind ourselves of the beauty of the Christmas story. Because if this is our natural inclinations, if this what our flesh desires, then what we have in this Christmas story is the wonderful meeting of our needs, even though we did not want our needs met. And this is evident. This is evident by the amount of times throughout Scripture God reaches out. This is, a, this is a, the, the, how many times in Scripture that God calls and initiates and seeks to bring back or call to repentance or call for you to come back to him. And I know I've said it. Romans 5.8, when it says, but God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that even in our state of rebellion, the invitation still goes out. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. They say, actually, if you look, if it's the word... Um, 
return, I think it's in the NIV, I think return is mentioned in the book of Jeremiah alone, I think over 28 times. Actually, if you look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, there's a, there's a theme that comes just from that, where you have with Isaiah, where we referred to last week, you have, he who is wonderful, the promise of the Messiah that comes, and then you have from that to Jeremiah that looks at return. Return to me, my people. And then in Ezekiel, the common phrase in Ezekiel is that they may know that I am the Lord. And then Daniel refers to what? To when he comes back again. It's just this progression, which I thought was really interesting, within the four major prophets there. But carrying on. Uh, but you have played, uh, uh, shall we turn? Okay, shall a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man? Shall he return unto her again? Shall not the land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, says the Lord. There's that reaching out to reconcile. Hosea 14, verse 1. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Once again, if you read through Hosea, it's about how he goes. He marries Goma. Hosea marries a, a prostitute named Goma who still sleeps around. And, and the heart of God is such, he says, look, come back to me. Return to me. You are still my wife and I still love you. That invitation, that invitation to reconcile. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And these Three instances, three instances of many, it is God calling out to reconcile with those that he loves. Even though that love isn't returned, he desires to reconcile with his people, to reestablish a friendly relationship, to reestablish a friendship, even with God actively seeking them out and disciplining them in their disobedience, he makes a point of their stubbornness that even though they refuse such a gracious and long-suffering reconciliation, he's still stretching his hand out to them. Amos chapter 4, verse 6, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me. In the days of Amos, they will experience the consequences of their disobedience. And God says, look, I'm, I'm here. In Jeremiah chapter 2, one of my favorite verses is when God says to the people of Israel, what sin has your fathers found in me for you to turn away from me? Basically, God's saying, what have I done? What have I done wrong? Have I been unfair? Have I been unjust? What have I done for you to leave me? That's the call here. And he's saying, look, even though I've done this now... Come back to me. These are the consequences of your sin. Come back. Where else can you go? In Haggai chapter 2, verse 17, I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Once again, it's saying, look, here it is. This is the consequence of your wrong choices you're the ones that will experience a lack of food. You're the ones that experience the, the lack of blessing. You're the one that will experience all this sort of stuff because you're choosing to go your own way. You're choosing to live in disobedience. Come back. I'm here. Return to me. This is the heart of our God. And, and once again, you see these same attitudes of heart 
evident in the life of the Lord Jesus. You read in the New Testament the promise given by Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I know life. And we've shared this before. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is uncertain. And the invitation of our Lord is to say, here I am. Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a promise given by Jesus. Or even the fact of a personal invitation. I like this in Luke 19.5 when Jesus invites Zacchaeus, come down immediately, I must eat at your house today. I must eat at your house today. How's that for a self-invitation? But I think that's absolutely amazing because this is the same heart of God toward you and toward me that in the difficulties that we experience and the way we try to solve things with our own hands, the way we try to solve things with our own resources, and he might just say something as simple as, Joe, come down, get off your high horse, Stop trying to figure things out on your own. Come, let me sup with you and minister to your heart. Revelation 3.20 is exactly what it says, isn't it? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. He is reaching out to reestablish a relationship, to reestablish a friendship with his very own people. And that's, the, that's what happens in Revelation chapter 3, and that's what he is inviting us to. So you have there the promise given, the personal invitation, or even this one, which I think is absolutely amazing, the divine pardon that he gives to the thief on the cross. Remember me when you come into paradise? And he says in Luke 23, 43, Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. These are all references to the heart of God that reaches out to us even now. And the circumstances that you're experiencing, the hardships that you're going through, the trials that you're having, He is inviting you to Himself. He is inviting you to lay aside your burdens, to lay aside your efforts, to lay aside all those things, and to come before Him and say, God, help I don't understand what's going on, Lord. Help. Now, you may get an answer, and you may not. But the point is to be at the feet of the Savior. That's the point. See, these are references to the heart of God that reaches out to us, a theme that the Scriptures are ripe with and underline everything within the Scriptures' pages. This is the reason why, when you look at now, this is like a, a lane of, of groundwork because in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read this. The beginning of the Christmas story, as it were. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That very name, Emmanuel, means what? God with us. God with us. It reiterates the relational aspect of God's nature, of his involvement with us, of his presence 
with us. It doesn't say that he'd only be with us when times are good. His name, Emmanuel, is not when things are going sweet, even though we enjoy the blessing of that. It is when the hard times, the difficult times, the struggles, God with us. Not God about us, not God behind us, but God with us. It's his involvement with us and the desire he has to be in relationship with us. Even though, as was shared before, even though I am told I don't naturally desire the things of God, I am told that I cannot come to Jesus on my own account. We are told this, we are told this in the scriptures. Um, I cannot come to the Father unless, uh, sorry, I, let me repeat that. I cannot come to Jesus unless the Father first draws me. That's in John chapter 6, verse 44, which means that all I am capable of is to attempt my own way, which leads, as Kiichi Kitahara shared a couple of weeks ago from Proverbs 14.12, it leads to death. There's a way that appears right to us, but the end leads to death. So it is in this step of the Christmas story that we are introduced to the one who proclaims a message of reconciliation and hope. And I'm going to touch on three things very, very quickly. The Christmas story, if you turn to Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, I thought I put it up there for you. I don't think I did. No, I didn't. Okay. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus is at a synagogue, and as is custom, somebody goes up, they kiss the scrolls, and they read out a passage of Scripture. Jesus goes forward, and he reads out this passage of Scripture. He reads out, from the, it's actually from Isaiah that he's reading, but in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, we read this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here is the good news. Here is the good news for those of us who have been sent free. He is, we have been reconciled to live freely. It says there, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He has reconciled me to live freely. What are people in prison to nowadays? I shared with you before, like in Kairos, we went to a prison. We saw people physically, physically captured, physically imprisoned due to crimes and stuff that they have committed. There was one young man, well, actually I was the youngest, besides Craig, when Craig was there. There was one gentleman, he looked a lot younger than I did. He was actually part of the Kairos team. He got up there and he shared something which was absolutely amazing. Um, Ian, Ian. So they had a contrast of people sharing their testimonies. They had one guy named Lance who came from a really rough background. When I say rough, it was, it was shocking. Like it, he, he was beaten, he was spat on by his mum. He was kicked, he was physically abused. It was absolutely shocking, the stuff that he went through. From the very person that was supposed to offer him trust, where he could feel comfort and feel protected, he, he was abused physically and emotionally and mentally and he was damaged for it until he came to know the Lord Jesus. 
and that he was no longer bound by that. Absolutely amazing. And a lot of the guys in the prison could relate to that. He shared how he was imprisoned to his past. Ian, another great guy, complete opposite. Really nice guy, corporate man. He would ride in the private jets. He would have this, that, and the other. He had all the money. He had all the success. He had all the he had anything he wanted, he could basically purchase. And yet he got up there and he shared the exact same thing about how he was imprisoned, not to his past, but to his present, to his career, to his success. And he shared openly and honestly, and I was amazed at this. He shared about how he had a mistress and that he, uh, I don't think it's my right to actually share that, but he, he got her to do things which now he regrets and how his wife reached out to him and led him to Christ and how their marriage now is something that's, that's God glorifying. But both of these guys from different backgrounds shared what they were imprisoned to. One to success, to bad choices, the other to domestic violence, to physical abuse. And, and they found their liberation in the person of Christ. But what then, when you think about yourself and your context and what you're going through, what are you imprisoned to? Yes, people are imprisoned to their sin, for which the wages of sin are death, we are told. And, and as people who are imprisoned to their sin and to their very own natures, we are told we are receivers of judgment, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. But we can be imprisoned, even as Christians. We can be imprisoned to our career. And we're imprisoned to the necessity of being financially secure. That can end up being a God in and of itself because everything is, can be connected to it. Now, please do not misinterpret me. I'm not saying don't be financially secure. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't have savings. I'm not saying don't go have a holiday. I'm not saying, I'm not, please, I'm not saying don't have a house. I'm not saying don't have a nice car. I'm not saying don't do well at your job. I, I think you guys, you honor God in your work, and as you honor God in your work, and you are rewarded appropriately, and you'll earn the, the, what's attached to that. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that. What I am saying is don't let that be your God. Don't let that be your God. Don't let your chasing of the dollar, and, and, and you lay in your sacrifice and your sacrifice to chase the dollar and the God of money, you lay at that sacrifice your children. Or that you lay, as you sit down, you try to chase the dollar and chase the position within your career, you lay at the altar of sacrifice of that God, your wife or your husband. Or the relationships you have with those who are close to you. Don't lay those things and say, okay, in my chasing of the dollar, I'm going to lay this aside. That's what I'm saying. Don't let that Become your God. You can also be, what, what is more important, to be recognized by others or to be recognized by God? What are the things that people, people are imprisoned to worry? The uncertainty of the future, the fear of the unknown, the issues with family, the concern over what could be instead of what is. Have you ever done this? I've done this a lot, where you've got to talk to somebody about a really important, serious issue, and you're freaking out over it, and you're praying, oh, well, Lord, give me wisdom, or, I don't know, Jimmy's a, Jimmy's a boss, or Uncle Bill, Uncle Bill's a boss, Brother Bill's a boss, and when somebody hears this line, Bill wants to see you, 
It's like when I get to, hey, Jeannie, the principal at the school, Jeannie Bathgate, Dr. Bathgate wants to see you. I'm like, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Going to the principal's office is the same no matter how old you get. <laughs> anyway, I've told this before. All principal's offices smell alike. I've been in a few, so I, okay. But you, 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 you're freaking out. You go because it's uncertain. And then when you get there, it's like, oh, and the last meeting I had with Jeannie, oh, Joe, she said some really cool things. Uh, we need this, that, and the other. Can you help us out? I'm like, oh, yeah. Yes. But that's what happens, isn't it? The fear of the unknown. The fear, fear is what the enemy uses to impair our vision of who God is and how he's in control. That's what we do. So worry. We can be imprisoned to worry about things. We can be imprisoned because I, I know some people who, who won't go to a doctor because they don't want to know what's wrong with them. Mine's a dentist. I don't like dentists. I hate dentists. You can tell by my teeth, but please don't stare. <laughs> I don't like dentists. I really don't. I, I, yeah, I just, I just don't. They're, they're one of the spiders and dentists are my two worst things that I'm scared of. But yeah, those, those are the things. What about, and here's the culture today, is imprisoned by lust. With the promotion of sex as being, as one person put it, a contractual, a contractual agreement between two people to get their rocks off. That's basically what sex has become. Sex, the, the easily accessible, the, even that, oh, this is children as young as year seven, in the bus, and I was told this at the school, in the bus, watching pornography on the bus, on their phones. That's how easily accessible things is. And so what's happened now is that this world has perverted something that God designed as being good and beautiful within the confines of biblical marriage has now taken it and tainted it. And where you get children, and, and I heard, I heard um, one, one preacher talk about this, that it is so bad now that guys in their mid-20s have to use like Viagra and things nowadays because it's just so, so much pressure of what sex is supposed to be. This is what people have become imprisoned to. When, as Christians, we are, according to Ephesians chapter 4, one, follow the example of Paul as shared at the passage that um, Julie and Kenny used at their wedding. That I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you that you walk worthy of the vocation that you have received. If we're going to be imprisoned to anything, we are to be imprisoned to our Savior. But see, this is what we are reconciled for. We are reconciled to live freely, to live not how we want, but to live in accordance with God's Word. To, to, to live in a way that honors who God is. Because when we live in that way, we experience, as we shared last week, the abundance of what God's life is in Jesus Christ. That's why, and, and you hear, I mean, Pastor Ben has shared this from the front, Jono and, and Jimmy and Nick and all, all the guys, all the preachers that we've had come up here share, and we share how the heart of God is such that we as his children should live in obedience to the word of God, not because we want to be a pain, not because we're trying to restrict you having fun, but rather that you might experience what life is and its true fullness and what fun is supposed to be. 
which is in accordance with God's word. When he says, if you love me, keep my commandments in John 14, he's saying that because we will enjoy life all the more as we follow God's commandments. In 1 John, he's given us such commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. In the NIV, it says his commandments are not grievous. I like the word burdensome. Burdensome, God's commands are not supposed to be weighing you down. God's commands are not supposed to be sitting there and you make it so much difficult for you to move. The only reason we find it so difficult to move and why we feel like it's weighing us down is because we want to go and live in sin, but we've got this burden of God's word upon us and the Spirit of God convicting us, which makes it really difficult for us to do what we want. That's why it's so difficult. That's why it becomes a burden. That's why we miss out on the joy of what God's life is. But we have been set free. We've been reconciled to live freely. The second thing is that we have been reconciled to see clearly. To see clearly. There's that old song from the 70s. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I can see all obstacles in my way. Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind. It's going to be a bright, sunshiny day. I don't even know who sings that song. But have you ever noticed that when you're looking at something, that there are certain things you can never unsee? Some things are bad, and oh, I can tell you some stories. But there are some things when you're looking at something, for example, you know what this is? Where's Wally? Now, everyone's looking for Wally, okay, and I know where Wally is, and I also know where Oddlaw is. Can anyone tell me where Wally is? It's pretty hard, isn't it? Right there. It's pretty hard. It's a really terrible picture. But now you cannot unsee that. Whenever you look at that picture, you will always see where Wally is. Oddlaw is right there. Oddlaw. Okay, in America, Wally is called Waldo. And Oddlaw is the opposite. He's the bad guy in the the Wally things. So... So you have Waldo and Oddlaw, but, you know, it's in Australia. Ah, yo, Wally. Yo, Wally. So they put a where's Wally over here and Oddlaw. But see, now, now if, I, if, I, if I went back here and I moved the picture up again, you'll know where they are. You cannot unsee that. You cannot unsee that. Now, the reason why I wanted to do this is because for a lot of us, once we see once we see the hand of God at work, you cannot unsee it. Once you see God move, you cannot unsee it. It is very difficult for us. And when we are confronted with situations and struggles and, and hardships, but once God reveals himself in each of those circumstances, you cannot unsee the hand of God at work. So when it says within the scripture there, to recovery of sight for the blind, we've been reconciled to see clearly God working. I think a lot of us aren't even looking for that. I think a lot of us are blinded by this. Case in point, in John chapter 9, in John chapter 9, we have the, the, the proclamation of a blind man who has given his sight by Jesus. In John chapter 9, and, and so what happens is there's this big rigmarole and this man is healed. The religious leaders of the day saying, okay, we, we, can't, we, can't, we can't go along with this. It can't be Jesus because he can't be doing so much good. 
So they interview the parents and they say, okay, the parents, was he really blind since birth? And it got so, much, it got so bad that the parents were thinking, um, well, if we, say, if we say he was blind from birth and he was healed, that means we're going to get in trouble, we'll get put out of the synagogue. Um, well, you're going to have to go talk to him. He's an adult now. You go talk to him. So straight away they pass the buck. They go and talk to him. And this is the proclamation of the blind man in chapter 9, verse 25. Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. For a lot of us as the children of God, this can be our only testimony. I may not know the situation or the circumstances of what's taking place, but I do know this, that God has moved, and I know he has. That God has healed, and I know he has. That God has provided, and I know he has. I can't fully understand it. I can't fully explain it, but I know my God is there. The ability to live freely can only come about by the ability to see Jesus clearly, to see him for who he is, to see him as Lord, to see him as Savior, to see him as God, to see him as anything less than those things does himself an injustice and causes us to miss out. How do you see Jesus? For a lot of people today, they see Jesus as a genie. For some people, they see him as a solver of problems. But rather than these convenient things, Jesus is the one whom we are called to submit ourselves to as he changes us from glory to glory. Even within the Christmas story, some still see Jesus as the baby in a manger, and it goes no further than that. Some choose to see him as a myth. Some decide to remain apathetic. Some want him to be fake to justify their view of life. And others deny the brutal reality that he is Emmanuel, God with us that he is the fulfillment of God's promise, that he is God's incarnate to whom the heavens rejoiced at his birth. He is the redemption and consolation of Israel, the lion of Judah to whom the Magi bowed and worshipped. When we have been reconciled to see him clearly, then, we choose to, then when we choose to unsee him as a result of us suppressing the truth of who he is, it's not him changing or bringing him about, or, bring, or making him something that he is not. So reconciliation is the ability to us to live freely, to see clearly. And lastly, we are reconciled to free others by proclaiming openly. It says to set the oppressed free to proclaim, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay. Jesus charged his disciples, as freely as you received, freely give. Which is basically stating the reality that if you've been given, that what you've been given Christ, in Christ, that what you have received in the reconciliation to Jesus Christ is not to be held to yourself. It's not to be selfish, but rather given. Um, J.H. Jowett 
in his book talks about some of those things that you have to give away or you have to lose in order to gain. When Jesus says, you know, you've got to lose to find, you've got to lose to find, well, what do you lose to find? And J.H. Jowett made the point of says, love. Love is that which, is, 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 the more you receive of it, it only, only occurs when you give more of it away. And he demonstrated that in the person of Christ. The more if he gave himself, not only did we receive from that, but he in turn, in fulfilling his God, God's will, received an abundance of blessing too. But in that reconciliation that Jesus brings, we too are charged to proclaim a life-changing message that speaks to, the, to others and offer others their chance to be reconciled as well. If you look at Luke chapter 2, verses 13 to 18, you read about the shepherds, that after they saw the heavenly host proclaim all glory to God and on earth peace towards all men, the shepherds went and they saw the Messiah and they bowed down and they worshipped. And you know what they did after that? They went out and told anybody they could find. They went and proclaimed an opportunity. They, They went and spoke about the Messiah who had arrived. Straight up, what did they know? Nothing. They knew the testimony of the heavenly host. They saw, they saw in person the reality of Jesus Christ. And then they said, let's go tell people. Last night, I was bringing in the laundry. So next door, uh, we have some new neighbors behind us, um, which, who I haven't met. But they're having a Christmas party. Um, they were a Hindu family. And so they were there. And I was bringing the laundry. It's all dark. It's, it's, it's all dark there and, and stuff, so no one can see me. Anyway, anyway so I'm, I'm taking in the washing, and they're all, the music's playing, and I can hear people talking. And I could hear one guy talking with the, 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 the gentleman who, who lives in the house. And he's going, this, the, I could hear the, the, the gentleman talking, the Hindu man, and he, he's sharing about what he believes is a Hindu, and he's sharing with this guy. And then this other gentleman sits in and goes, wow, have you heard of Ravi Zacharias? And I'm like, <laughs> so I, I'm, I, yeah, yeah. So I'm just, stand, I'm just standing by the fence listening to the conversation. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, still, I'm still getting in the laundry. And so I'm, I'm just listening. And this guy starts to go, oh, Ravi Zacharias from a very similar background. He was from a Hindu background. And he shares a bit of his testimony. Then they start going back and forth about what truth is. And, and this young man, he, he starts sharing the gospel with this guy very clearly, very concise. I just started praying for him there. I says, oh, Lord, can you make an impact in this gentleman's life through this young man who's, who's reaching out? And, and you know, other people were adding in their little bits and stuff, and he was just sharing the gospel. He was, he was proclaiming openly, openly about the reconciliation that he received in Jesus Christ, and he was, he was sharing that faithfully. And, and maybe when I see him in heaven, he goes, oh, I'll pray for you behind the fence, man. <laughs> but this, this is the freedom that we've been given. Part of living freely is to be able to communicate to others how they too can see clearly. And as we openly proclaim this life-changing message that sets people free, that sets them free from their imprisonment, that's what we have been given in Jesus Christ. That was so, I told my wife, and my wife just goes to me, you're one of those neighbors. And I was like, I am too. Yeah, one of those neighbors that listen at fences. I realize how bad that sounds. So anyway, 
But we have been given this. We have been given this in our in personal testimony and experience. We have been told this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Now, listen to this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, if last week we looked at how the Christmas story is about repair, the repairing of what was broken, well, why something is repaired is in order to it to be used or so it could function the way it's supposed to be designed. That's what the gospel story is about. That's what the Christmas story is about. It's about repairing the brokenness of who we are. It is also about the reconciling of a broken relationship that we share with God. And because we've experienced such a reconciliation, a friendship that's been established, we get now to tell others about that same friendship God wants with them as well. So we have been given a message of reconciliation. And you know what's even more amazing? It's not our message. I don't have to make nothing up. I don't have to sit there and create something. I just need to take the passage of what God's Word says in connection with my life and how God has transformed my life and communicate it to others. That's it. So in other words, He's done all the work. He's given us all the material. He's given us the ability and capacity to do it and empowered us to do that. You know what we need to do? Do it. That's it. That's it. See, how many of you, I, 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 I don't want to, I'm going to finish very soon. How many of you went home after Alex Stark shared with us here and practiced communicating the gospel concisely in one minute? How many of you could confidently and clearly communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in one minute? Because I, I, I went home and did it. I went home and did it. And I remember what Alex shared. Alex shared that when you, when you clearly understand what it is concisely, then you're able to communicate it in a way that will be able to be suited or, or, or addressed in a particular way with the people that you're talking with. It'll help you connect with others and be able to enable you to clearly communicate that in that situation. So I did it. I practiced. I wrote it down. I got it into a minute. And then the very next day at work, I got to try it. And it was... It was really cool. It enabled me to proclaim openly because I know clearly what I believe. And I understood, or not understood, understand what the gospel is and what it's meant to do. So I would encourage you, I would encourage you, if we've been given the ministry of reconciliation to enable others to live freely, to enable others to see clearly, to enable others to, be, to, to free others and proclaim the open this message that has impacted my life and your life, well then let's use what God has given us and equip ourselves for that because we have been reconciled for purpose. So we are reconciled to live freely, 
reconciled to live to see clearly, reconciled to free others, reconciled to openly proclaim this wonderful life-giving message of how God became a man, miraculously born to a virgin, to live according to God's will, die in submission to his Father's plan in order to fulfill the demands of God's holiness, the payment for my sin, and to suffer on a cross on my behalf. So my brokenness could be repaired and my relationship with God reconciled. The very thing that God set in place before the foundation of the world, that this, that this of how God being with us could be communicated to others so that our God could be with others as well. Um, if you just want to bow your heads, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the music team to come up as we pray, please, and then uh, we'll close in our last song. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of reconciliation that you've entrusted to us, that the message that can liberate people from darkness, that can set captives free, that can give sight to the blind, that can give wholeness to the broken, that can repair hearts and reconcile friendships. Father, we thank you. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, you have done that for us, and that in Jesus Christ, you've entrusted that same message to us as well. Father, stir our hearts to clearly understand and appreciate what you have given us in this Christmas story. Father, I pray for the upcoming carols event that we might be able to reach out to those around us, ask them to attend, and and Father, that we might be able to have an impact on the lives of those that we encounter each day, whether in the workplace, whether at home in our neighborhoods, whether at our schools or universities. Either way, Lord, we are your vessels. You've entrusted us a wonderful ministry. Help us to fulfill that ministry faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.